You're listening to EVH and Gear TV, brought to you by Design39 Media. Visit design39media.com for all your website, photography, and video production needs. Microphones for EVH and Gear TV are provided by Rode Microphones. An official Van Halen merchandise is provided by vanhalenstore.com. And now, here's your host from Ontario, Canada, EVH artist Eric Broadbent. Hey everyone, it is the weekend. Happy Friday to you all. Welcome to a special edition of Kramer Corner. Yes, we're doing Kramer Corner this evening. We're switching some things around here. And before we begin, I would just say that we're not doing an EVH and Gear TV show. I would just like to say a thank you to our sponsors uh, for the EVH and Gear TV show. Obviously, Stuart Guitar Company. See the incredible stowaway travel guitars at stuartguitars.com. So this is a continuation of a series I started a while back, kind of the history of Kramer Guitars, and we did one interview in person with Gary Kramer down at his home in California a few weeks back. Tonight we're continuing the history of Kramer with one of the founding fathers himself, Mr. Henry Vaccaro Sr. Mr. Vaccaro, how are you? I'm doing great. Nice to have you here, and to, to, to have you here is an honor. I'm going to try my very, very best throughout the entire evening not to fanboy out, but the legacy that you've uh, you've contributed to uh, to the guitar world is beyond measure, so there's a lot of guitar fans who are going to be very thankful to hear your words of wisdom this evening. Well, I hope they're words of wisdom. <laughs> it's, i got to say, too, for the, those that are tuning in and watching in the live chat right now, too, uh, Henry's son was helpful, too, to set him up today with Skype, and we've got him going. But, uh, you know, the first time Henry's ever used Skype, it's kind of new technology, and he's like a seasoned veteran already with the technology. So now you can contact some of your friends and family in other parts of the world and have some video chats with them. Okay. <laughs> so throughout the evening, we'll be jumping over to the chat and um, you know talking to some of the people there uh, as well and some of the questions that they'll have. But before we get right into Kramer Guitars and things like that, I'd like to maybe kind of warm up the crowd and let people, if they don't know your whole backstory, kind of where you started uh, in business. If I understand, your corporation that you started out with, with your business, was more like in property development and, and construction. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, what happened was uh, my father was a doctor. And uh, he passed away in the start of my sophomore year at uh, Villanova University. And I quit college and I came home and I started digging. I had bought a backhoe and I was digging foundations and uh, kind of crazy stuff. And eventually I became a general contractor. And by the time it was all over, I actually built a billion dollars worth of public projects. Some 32 schools, uh, five hospitals, seven high rises, and even a nine-story prison. So that's a, that's how I got started. Major, major development. Like we're not talking yes. just building some like, fancy homes. We're talking some major, like you're doing uh, even, were you doing like some waterfront development or something at one time too? Or Yes. At one time I was a partner in the uh, Asbury Park redevelopment okay. uh, of my home hometown. It was a $1 billion project. And if it could go wrong, it went wrong. But <laughs> at least I got it started. And along the way, I uh, purchased a... Uh, a hotel, a classic hotel, a 450-room hotel called the Berkeley Carteret Hotel, and it was scheduled for the Wrecking Ball. Okay. I bought it. I bought it for three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, an entire city block, right next to the Atlantic Ocean, and I brought in as my partner Johnny Cash. We're going to be. And, uh, we're going to be talking friend, about him. And a thirty-year-old friendship developed. That's great. We're going to be talking about him in depth tonight as well, too, because I've got some great questions for you in regards to Johnny Cash. And I know it's very special, too, to my better half here. She loves who doesn't love Johnny Cash, honestly, who doesn't? Yeah, but yeah we'll be, he is. I think I read some stories as well, too, with this hotel that you bought. It didn't it won some awards, too, for I forget what the actual thing was, but it won some awards for project of the year or something. Yes. What happened was um, 
since this was an urban town, uh, it was available to federal government a grant, and it was called a UDAG grant, U-D-A-G, Urban Development Action Grant, and it was based on the equity being put in by the developer and a number of jobs to be created. And we were able to get a $3 million grant, and we won uh, as the best project in the entire United States for the use of public and private funds as we created oh, five times more jobs than they had anticipated, and uh, not only in the construction, but in the operation of the hotel. And uh, we went to Washington, D.C., and, and we received an award, and a young Mitch McConnell presented us with the award. What an honor. Boy, oh boy. What a contribution as well, too. So obviously you were probably very well respected by the hometown people. For, you know, a lot of times people are just wrecking stuff and tearing it down and bringing like, like I told you about where we live. We have some heritage to our area right. and, and uh, the town where we moved from as well, too. There, there's people that want to knock down these buildings and put up high rises and all this other kind of stuff. And there's, thank goodness, there's some people that have some money and they're just buying the properties and, and for good because they want to save it. They want to preserve it. And if they do do any remodeling, they want to keep it historic. So you got to pass the city's kind of bylaws to keep the old signs looking, you know, like they were back in the day. And I'm really glad that there are people out there trying to preserve these things like that. Well, I restored the hotel, these grand ballrooms, as they were in 1926. Oh, wow. I had two old Italian plasters that worked two to three years just restoring the plaster as it was because the hotel had a rich history in our family. Uh, my grandfather was a landscape contractor and he never got paid and he took stock certificates in lieu of debt. I still have those stock certificates. Oh boy. Then in the heyday of the hotel in the late 30s, my father would cut the lawn there and then in uh, 1939, my mother and father were married there and in 1959, my father was awarded a uh, from the Pope uh, and he was knighted by Pope John XXIII. They sent a courier over from Rome, uh, and he was received this knighting in this ceremony at the Berkeley Cutterer Hotel. And just a little aside story, my dad was a doctor. He was a maverick. He had office hours seven days a week, even on Sunday. He had office hours in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. He would then make house calls, go home, start the thing over the next day. Now, this, this ceremony was on a Sunday evening. That meant my father could have office hours Sunday afternoon. He then made a couple of house calls, came home, put on a tuxedo, went to this dinner, which got over around 11 o'clock. After the dinner, he went out and made three more house calls. And the last patient he saw was a black man on the west side of Asbury Park who said, here comes Jesus Christ and he's dressed in a tuxedo. <laughs> my dad went to sleep and the next night he died of a massive heart attack. He was 51 years old. Oh no. So, so that's my memories, but they're incredibly beautiful memories. You, they are beautiful memories. And something I'm hearing about your dad, uh, he sounds like a, a very admirable man and a hardworking gentleman. He sounds a lot like my father. I didn't learn a ton from my father, but I, I swear I'm sure you'll say the same thing about your dad. Your dad seemed to have taught you to do the job right the first time. It seems like what you've done with yeah. your business. That's what I learned. And my dad would make me do that job. He goes, you can do the job right the first time or you can do it wrong 50 times. And, you know, he'd make me work on the farm and, you know, I, my friends would call me, want to go out and play, whatever. Like, well, I got to do a job for my dad. I'd go out and do it yeah. and it'd pick up rocks in the field so it wouldn't hurt the heavy equipment. And literally taking out a wagon and loading up the wagon oh. with rocks. And I would say, I'm done, dad, after five minutes. And he's like, you're not done. And <clears> after, after a while, after doing it 50 times, I learned that doing it the right time, do it right the first time makes that job a little shorter, you know, and less, less hassle. 
Yeah, I, I can understand that. But I'm just just a little aside. I'm just going to jump to Johnny Cash for a second. Sure. Because we, I was fishing in Bimini with Johnny Cash, and and it's probably in the mid to late '80s. No, it was early '80s. And you know, just two guys on a boat. You certainly get to know each other. And he asked me. He says, "Henry, tell me a little bit about your family and your dad and all that." When I told him the story about my father, he was really impressed, and I didn't think anything of it. He had on around his neck a sterling silver cross. I didn't think anything of it. I don't wear jewelry. I don't wear even a watch. When I got home, maybe six, eight weeks later, I get a package from the house of cash, which was Johnny's office. And when I opened it up, I started to cry. And that package was that sterling silver cross that he wore around his neck, and he had it encased in solid gold. And on the back, it said, to my friend Henry, in memory of your father, Sebastian, Johnny Cash, Easter, 1983. Oh, That's wow. my most prized possession. And you have that probably locked away somewhere safe right now? You're damn right. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. You know, I think maybe what we'll do, we're going we're gonna to twist some of our itinerary around tonight, just because we're on a really nice, warm, heartwarming story right now, Johnny Cash. I mean, you know, I don't know at all of Johnny Cash's discography. I grew up with my parents, loved, my mom loved him to death. Uh, so does my better half, Nocturnal Butterfly, in the chat here. She loves him to death. I mean, like I said, who doesn't? So we're going to come back to Kramer because I think I think almost an, and Kramer is secondary compared to what we're hearing tonight. This is beautiful, beautiful memories that you just don't get a chance to talk to talk about. Um, I believe that it was kind of the artist relations kind of uh, had a bit of a, a a foot in to meet Johnny. Was that correct? You kind of met him through artist relations, and then it kind of developed a friendship from there. Yeah, what happened was, um, naturally, you know, like some people growing up at my age were big Frank Sinatra fans. Well, I was a Johnny Cash fan. And uh, I, you know, his first record, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe this voice. Make a long story short, we had a, uh, a venue called the Garden State Arts Center on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey. And every couple of years, Johnny would come and play there because when an artist would sign up to play, it would be a week. He would be there uh, for a complete week. Well, I was building a major hospital in a town called Sea Caucus, New Jersey, uh, way up north. And uh, it was being managed by a company out of Nashville called Hospital Affiliates. I'm sitting in a doctor's office that, was, that owned the hospital. It was a private hospital. And I'm thumbing through, and I see Hospital Affiliates. And I look further, and I see a Dr. Nat Winston's photo. I had just completed reading Johnny's autobiography, uh, The Man in Black, and he attributes uh, getting off the pill habit to not only his wife, June, but to Dr. Nat Winston. So I arranged for the doctor in Caucus to call Nat Winston in Asheville to fix it up so I could meet Johnny backstage at the Garden State Arts Center the following summer. And uh, sure enough, I met him. And when I met him, I didn't introduce myself as being in a construction business. In fact, for the next three years, he never even knew I was a contractor. <laughs> I introduced myself as being in a guitar business as I wanted to have something in common. Of course. So um, we're backstage and I'm telling him, I says, you know, uh, we have this company called Kramer and nobody ever heard of it then. Sure. I says, we have aluminum neck guitars and the sound is incredible. He says, well, we're staying locally at the Hilton Inn. Why don't you come by tomorrow morning around nine or 10? I'll introduce you to Marshall Grant and Bob Wooten. Well, sure enough, I showed up, and Marshall op welcomed me with open arms because somebody had contacted the House of Cash, a guitar maker, to arrange a uh, presentation for Marshall. The guy doesn't show up, and I show up, and he thinks I'm the guy. Oh, that's they let me in like it was nothing. <laughs> and make, make a real long story short, the Kramer factory 
was only some five miles away from the Hilton Inn, and I put Marshall and Bob in my car, drove to the factory, and that night on stage, the entire Johnny Cash band was playing aluminum neck Kramer guitars. Marshall, a Kramer bass, Bob, a custom uh, Kramer guitar, and Jerry Hensley, the other guitar player, another Kramer guitar, and that's how it all started. So I'm guessing right then and there, too, because all of those guys in the band would have never experienced an instrument like that. It's a different feel, uh, a solid, solid neck on that, sustained like no other. That must have been. So what was the feedback rate that uh, after the show? They loved it. They really did. And the sound was incredible. And probably for the next year or so, they all played aluminum neck guitars. And then uh, we were having a problem uh, with the neck back then. Uh, The problem was that it would tend to expand. Okay. Why did it expand? Because you have this mass of aluminum, which was a forging, and you put it under this hot stage lights, it would expand just enough to make it infinitesimal just to go out of tune. So they had to continue tuning it. Another thing, after they got, uh, we went to Woodnecks, Bob Wooten, the rest of his life, played a red Kramer guitar, a Woodneck Kramer guitar, oh, and he no. loved it. He was one of my closest friends. I heard I heard kind of uh, kind of a story that same like what you're saying too. I never actually heard about the aluminum expanding, and that makes total sense. You know, metal you know and under heat's going to expand a little bit. Uh, Gary mentioned to me as well too. Sometimes you'd have the opposite effect where if you're coming in the extreme cold, let's say a band's playing up in Toronto, and you know the, the things just coming off the bus in the middle of winter, right. and you grab that bass guitar or that guitar, and it could be a little chilly to the hand. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. That was that was one of the inherent problems is you felt the cold aluminum on your hand. Mm-hmm. And somebody that wasn't used to it, uh, you know, took time to warm it up. Now, am I, so, oh, go ahead. We did get this incredible sound. Certainly. Now, here again, too, I'm just going to go with a little bit of information. I think I got this. I think Gary Kramer had mentioned this to me. Uh, was, it, was it Jerry Garcia that actually preferred the cold touch of the guitar? I think he'd mentioned that he preferred the cold, the coldness of the neck. I can't answer that because I, I think that I think you were talking about a, a Travis Bean. Maybe it was. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, you're probably right. That'd be just just prior to you. So that makes total sense. Yes. And I think you're correct on that for sure. Well, obviously, a fantastic story. And the, the, so funny, the fact that uh, Johnny didn't even know that you were in construction for about three years later. He didn't. Yeah. In fact, that June will make a comment. She would say when she saw Henry, she said, let him in, let him in. He says he probably don't have enough money to buy a ticket. Besides, he always brings guitars to Bob. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fun. And the family speaks so highly of you, too. I've seen so many of the quotes uh, from the Mm -hmm. book. And we're going to share the link. Your book is still on Amazon available for purchase. Uh, Yes, it's called Johnny Cash is a Friend of Mine. I want to get that book for sure. I'm going to purchase that. But we're going to share the link tonight where people can purchase it. And uh, obviously more than a friend, like a confidant and uh, kind of a, a long partner in life. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. To, to, I mean, to have a, somebody, he was my idol. And then to be best friends with your idol, the number one country star ever, uh, doesn't get, as Chris Christopherson would say, it doesn't get any better than that. No, it's almost it's almost surreal. I'm sure there's probably many days where you probably, you know, even when Johnny was with us, that you kind of pinch yourself. Is this real? Am I going to wake up and tomorrow and this is not going to be real? It's probably, you know, kind yeah, of a was- catch-22. I have some stories that are, uh, you know, we'll talk about them later. But, uh, I mean, some incredible stories about this incredible man yeah. and how humble he was. 
he seemed like it, didn't he? I mean, just looking at him and he, I mean, you know, me being not as knowledgeable about Johnny Cash, I'm a rock guy, right? I, I know lots about Eddie Van Halen. I don't know lots about uh, Johnny Cash, but you just didn't really hear a lot of trouble about him. You know, there's then again, too, there was not social media and things like we have today, but still everything you heard about the man, you know, he was an inspiration to many. He did uh, a lot of good things for people and, and making people well, happy first and foremost. He was the first performer to sell out the new Madison Square Garden back before you had Ticketmaster and Ticketron and all that stuff. The first. And that says something. And also, too, there wouldn't be these PA systems that we have today either, mm-hmm. that, you know, like these massive subs and, you know, floating systems. And, you know, uh, it's just crazy today. Yep. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Well, let's take a quick second. I'm going to jump okay. over and say hi to a bunch of people in the, in the chat. And when we come back, I want to talk about these other... Uh, uh, characters that you run into in your travels, the Gary Kramers and the Dennis Berardis, and you can kind of uh, tell us uh, how you come up to yeah. meeting those gentlemen. And uh, uh, Absolutely. You, yeah, we'll look forward to it. That's great. So over in the chat, we've got Sean Close over here, my beautiful nocturnal butterfly is running the chat very efficiently. Uh, Ron Limber is here. Brad Miller, Kai Down, 2 a.m. in England. They're tuning in from England. Kai is a regular. Brian Cote from here in Canada. Quentin James. Uh, Daryl Qualis is here. Uh, Joe Bentevania from uh, Line 6 in Yamaha is here. Uh, Guitar at Randall's here. Uh, Chuck Booth, Fred Siegel. Uh, so thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. This is fantastic. Carlos Santon here from Canada is tuning in. Uh, Gary Holt, uh, who is a very good personal friend of Gary Kramer's and actually the fellow who made it happen for me to meet Gary. So uh, I, I love Gary dearly. Thank you, Gary Holt. Uh, it's funny. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Gary contacted me through, not Gary Kramer, but Gary Holt contacted me through the Kramer Corner show here on YouTube. And he says, um, I want to put you in touch with Gary Kramer. He'd like to come on the show. And I, I basically told him, I said, yeah, right, go away. I almost shoot him away. Because, <laughs> like, you know, once you, once you start doing things on social media for a long time, I'm, I know you know what this is like because you're on social media yeah. and you've had the companies on social media. You get a lot of people kind of tire kickers, right? You know, yeah. can, you know, and I was like, I don't believe you go away. And it took about three or four social media interactions. And I finally realized he was legit, you know, and then the next thing you know, I'm talking to Gary on the phone and there we go. So and now look, I get to speak to you now because of that, too. So this is great. How about that? Uh, we have Single Coil Lover here uh, on the show as well, too. Thrash Metal on Riffs is here. Uh, let me see if I missed anybody else. Um, getting down towards the bottom. A lot of people are very, very thankful for your appearance tonight. We're very grateful. Max Nesbitt is here. Terry's GG&G. Mac Tech is my brother tuning in. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I know he's going to thank you. He, you remind me a lot of our father as well, too. And I was telling you off the air, my dad was a pilot. I know you have a, a fascination of aircraft. So it's very, very cool. Let me see. Anybody else I might be missing? Bobby Lopez is here. Sonia, one of our moderators, is here. We have a lot of greats, regulars here, and some new faces. I think that is just about it for now. I'm going to highlight down where we left off. And so let's talk. So, okay, you started in construction and, and all this land development and things like that. I obviously afforded you some means to be able to... Um, to basically invest in things, you know, a lot of things you had an opportunity to invest in and all of a sudden there might be a guitar company or a guitar idea that came your way. So tell us, take us on that journey meeting the, the sure. fine gentleman of Dennis Berardi and, and Gary Kramer. Okay, from what I recall, I, I, I owned a, uh, an industrial park and my goal was every year I want to build another building and for my long-term, you know, future investments. I had a building, it was a 12,500 square foot building and it was vacant and uh, Dennis Berardi showed up in my office along with another man named, um, I think his name was Banks Broman, who was a realtor. And Dennis knew him from Mattisquan. Uh, Dennis, I believe, had a summer home in Mattisquan uh, along the shore. 
and they're interested in renting the building. And I uh, showed him the building. He said, this really fits the bill. How much do you want? We kind of made a deal. And I said, what are you going to do? He says, uh, oh, we're going to manufacture guitars. He says, we have this new guitar. And he said, it's incredible. It's the only one that the neck's not going to break and you get this incredible sustain out of it. And he says, we're going to set the world on fire. So, wow. So we arranged it and I signed a lease with them. And I said, you know, if you're looking for an investor, I might be interested. I, you know, I'm looking to do a few things on the side. So uh, the next meeting, I believe, he showed me a guitar. It was the first prototype aluminum neck Kramer guitar. I said, you got to loan this to me. He said, well, for us, just loan it to me. I want somebody to play it. Well, that somebody was a young man named Billy Ryan. Uh, I had a construction superintendent named Bill Ryan, who was Billy's father. Well, young Billy started out playing in bands with Bruce Springsteen's. So I knew Billy knew his stuff. And he played and he gets back to me the next day. He said, wow, Henry, he said, this is something. He says, it's got this great sound, this great sustain. He says, it's kind of heavy. And I think if you could tweak a little bit and make some improvements, you really might have something. Well, based on that alone, I told Dennis, I would like to make an investment in the company, but I need to see a little more. I need to see a business plan and some other things. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I then believe that uh, they had just started to move into the building. Nothing was set up. There was no machinery or anything. I think Gail Amarine was the secretary who first started there. And I had not met Gary Kramer at this point in time. I believe I had just met Dennis. And later he introduced me to Peter LaPlaca. And uh, that was my first introduction to the company. And Peter uh, had a business degree from Harvard, and he was a former VP of uh, New Orleans Music at the time that owned Gibson Guitar. So that impressed me. And he presented a business plan, and uh, I liked it. And I made a small investment initially. This is even prior, I believe, to meeting Gary Kramer. Okay. And the next thing they were going to do, they were planning to go to this trade show in Chicago, uh, the NAM show. I believe I met Gary right about this time. Okay. And Dennis, and I like to say he was a marketing genius. Dennis could sell ice cream to the Eskimos <laughs> and, and ice to them in the wintertime. There you go. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah. he, he could. I mean, he lacked in some other areas, but he sure made up for it in his tenacity and his ability to uh, market things. And you'd, you'd fall in love with the guy, even if he took the shirt off your back, you'd <laughs> hug him, you know. So uh, they plan to go to the trade show. Or maybe a week or two before the trade show, they get the first in Dorsey, Stanley Clark. And Dennis felt that they could sell about $100,000 worth of guitars at the show. And I said, if you meet that mark, I'll put the money in the company. Okay. I believe the show might have been a Wednesday to Sunday. And this is when they only had one damn show a year. And I believe this was in um, maybe like in July or something. I get a friend a call from Dennis on Thursday. Henry, you got to get out here. He says, we're the hit of the show. Uh, I got to get out there. So I, my secretary made a reservation. I flew out to Chicago and I walk into this McCormick place. I could not believe this place. I mean, there's my first exposure to any type of trade show, let alone this one. I mean, this was, I forget how big it was, half a million square feet, whatever, but it was monster show. And you look down the aisle, and there's this giant Kramer neck sticking up in the, in the air with the V headstock looking. 20 feet wow. tall, pretty much. Yeah, so we'll make a long story short. 
they sold a half a million dollars worth of guitars at the show. And we had dealers wanting to pay cash in advance to get the first one to have the product. So now I'm flying home. Man, I got a first class ticket coming home. I mean, I'm in manufacturing. I hit the big time. Little did I know what was going to come next. But that's the start of it. I, I love and, that. Go ahead. No, I love that. It's fascinating. And, and Gary told me some uh, stories as well, too. And you can kind of elaborate on this. And I think when you're talking there, you're getting these cash, you know, a ca- I think he was saying a cash with order. You know, up until that yes. point, it was kind of like, okay, well, send me an invoice, send me a bill, whatever, that kind of thing. But now it became, no, 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 you got to be cash with order because, you yeah. know, these invoices, you can send invoices. Invoices don't necessarily cash or, or go to the bank. No. But, but cash but, does. Okay. So now we get, now we get home from the show. And we had a company called Kaiser Aluminum in Erie, Pennsylvania, that was making the forging. I don't know anything about forging, so I don't, I don't even play guitar, let alone. <laughs> I mean, I use a stereo. I turn it on and turn it off. But I love music. Um, so the deal was when everything was set up initially, uh, Kramer was just going to be an assembly plant. We're not going to manufacture anything. We're going to assemble. And with that, Gary was in charge of the initial assembly. And we had a company, and, and behind all this was a genius of a man named Phil Patillo. Phil was a Luther who basically did all the first prototypes. And uh, I cannot say enough about Phil Patillo. And uh, anyway, after we get everything set up, Phil had reached out to a company called Monteith, who imported exotic woods. The first Kramer bodies were Aframosha, Bobinga, all these ex- walnut, all these exotic woods, and Phil had located a company called Montif that would make the bodies for us and also finish them. So we would get in the factory finished bodies. Back then, they only had maybe a lacquer finish on them, which would scratch easily. Uh, Dennis and uh, and Gary had hooked up with I forget who the first pickup company was. I don't think it was Demarzio at the time, but it was another pickup company. But each pickup had a, a what they called a can cover on it which was made out of chrome with the name Kramer on it which then had to be buffed so we bought a buffer but Dennis hooked up with a company uh, a machine shop company at Wall Airport that was going to make the next force and they were going to deliver us a finished neck boy little did we know what problems they had quoted us a, pro- a price, I'm just going to throw out a number, maybe $26 a neck to do the machining. But to get to the finished product, it required the forging from Kaiser Aluminum. Then you had to glue wood inserts in the back of the neck. Then you had to turn it over and you had to glue the fingerboard on. Then you had to put it on a lathe and you had to turn it at high speed to bring it down to the right size. Then you had to put it in a milling machine to take the excess flask off the end of the neck. Then you had to put it in a buffing machine to polish it. Now this is a nightmare because, in, and then you had to finish the wood in the back. So if you finished the wood, that meant you had to tape the aluminum. So after you finished the, the wood, you then had to tape the wood to polish the aluminum. And then you had the fingerboard, which was a phenolic type plastic. And then you had to buff the headstock. I mean, a total nightmare. But the company was going to do all this for us says, oh my God. He says, you know, I did some more tests on this. And he says, I can't hold the price that I quoted you. It might have been $25, $26 a neck. He says, because I'm getting too much waste. He says, at every five or six necks, he says, the wood blows out on me. He says, the glue can't hold it. He says, this is crazy. And I said, well, okay. Now, we're in such a hurry to fill these orders. Uh, 
Kaiser Aluminum contacts. Uh, by the way, I had to send Kaiser a, a check thirty, forty thousand dollars to make the damn old. So that was the second investment I made in the company. Okay. Now they call us and the necks are ready. I says, uh, and they said we're going to ship them a common carrier. You should have them in three or four days. I said we can't wait three or four days. We got all these orders. So we run in a van and Andy Papiccio got in the van, drove it to Erie, Pennsylvania, came back the next day with the next. We rush over and take him to uh, the uh, machine shop, and the guy says, oh, that's great. He says, put him over there in the corner. He says, I can't get to him for three or four weeks. I'm backlogged on my other work. Oh, no. And Dennis is with me, and he almost had a heart attack. And we had a talk, and I said, Dennis, you know, <laughs> if we're going to be in business, we have to be in business the right way. He says, we got to buy some machinery. So I went to the bank and made arrangements for some funds. And I believe Dennis contacted somebody, and uh, they actually picked him up at the airport in a private plane and took him to a couple of machinery places, I believe one in Philadelphia and one in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And uh, three or four days later, a uh, truck pulls up to the Kramer factory with a milling machine and a lathe and buffers and all this stuff, and I'm excited as hell. And my office was only about half a mile away. I ran to my office and drove a forklift over there and I, I unloaded them myself and put them in place. And that's basically how the company got started. I heard a similar story from Gary as well, getting all these the machinery and getting it all rounded up. That must have been a blessing to see that. You know, you got parts just sitting there. You can't do anything with them. And yeah, but the, the next problem is we got the machinery, but we, we don't know. We need a tool and die maker to make the damn machinery work to make the parts that we need. And luck, God was smiling on us. Dennis contacted, I believe, the Bridgeport Milling Machine Company, and they had a freelance tool and die maker, a German man by the name of Bill Spees, another genius. And we hired Bill on the spot, and he made all the tooling and the brackets and everything. When we first started out, by the time you put all this on the lathe and turned it, we found out we had the wrong size lathe. Uh -oh. We had the right machinery, but the wrong size. Because even though it would hold a 36-inch long neck, we needed a machine that was maybe 10 or 12 feet in length because you needed the, the weight of the machine to, because as you turn this neck at high speed with the cutter, you would get what was called chatter okay. because the same knife would cut aluminum, wood, and plastic, all three dissimilar materials. So it would get chatter, da 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 da, -da which meant when it came off the lathe, now you got to spend a half hour sanding the damn thing. So make a long story short, we we're doing maybe six or eight necks in a day by the time bill speeds got finished we'd be doing six or eight next an hour oh wow Big so that was how that thing got going it almost sounds like it's you don't want to say it's too good to be true but it sounds like all the ducks were in a row and someone was really looking over you guys to make this uh, happen it will almost look like a disaster at one point all of a sudden now things are you know all in a row um, yeah. Manufacturing starting to come together, six, eight a day now to six or eight an hour. So those yeah, orders it was, were it was starting to come together. And then what happened was uh, we're still having problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, like any growing company, to fulfill orders and then you get some rejects and the whole nine yards. But another problem was when you go to put the body on, which is now finished, it, you might scratch it. And if you scratch the body, you now had to disassemble everything. And we didn't even have a paint booth or anything. So now you send it back to Monteith. So by the time this whole thing got going, we had our own spray boost. We went to acrylics. We went to polyesters. I mean, we, it was a learning curve, and we learned. 
Well, not to put the cart too far in front of the horse here, because we're going to probably go back and forth in time here. Um, we're talking okay. about newer Kramer and older Kramer and that kind of things as well, too. Um, but the, I, I think that kind of carried on for years to come in Kramer before, you know, right up until you got out of the business. A lot of the manufacturing was, I mean, assembly was done there, but parts were being uh, manufactured all over the world, Canada, overseas, and things like that as, right, as well, right? Well, that was later on. Right. I mean, early, early Kramer in the 76, 77, 78, it was just this, you know, maybe eight or ten people in a building. And, and at that point in time, uh, Gary had left the company. Right. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. One, uh, he came from Marina Del Rey, California, which was beautiful. And he moved to Sea Caucus, New Jersey, or someplace up north, <laughs> which meant he had an hour and a half trip every day to the factory, then an hour and a half back, and he's living in not such a, a great area, and he wasn't used to the cold and the snow and all that, and uh, he kind of got disenchanted with things, and uh, he left the company, and I, I eventually bought out of stock and sent him a check and bought out of stock, and that made me the largest stockholder of the company at that point. But when the company first started, it was it was uh, called BKL, Bernardi, right. Kramer, and La Placa. BKL distributors. It later became Kramer Guitar and eventually Kramer Music Products. I got to hold one of your original business cards, uh, the BKL. Yeah. I got to see all that really cool nostalgia. So I, I was like yeah. a kid in a candy store seeing all that. So uh, amazing stories. And I know if Gary ever comes up here to visit me in Canada, he certainly won't come in the winter because he was telling me the story of having his car buried uh, on the street. You know, he said, you know, okay, it costs this much money for an apartment and then it's extra hundred bucks to put your car in the underground parking garage. He goes, no, no, yeah. we'll just we'll go without. And his car was gone. And the funny story, you saw the interview, and he talks about uh, when he talks to the, the auto repair guy, he says, well, I can't get my key in the ignition, just heat it up with a lighter. And I said, oh, yeah, that works. He goes, you know about that? I'm like, Gary, I'm from He's Canada. I'm, I'm in Canada, man. That's what's for. That's our manual when we're born. Tim Horton is over here. You light your car, uh, get a key like this, and all that good stuff. So that's yeah. hilarious. Um, something, something that I think is really kind of sad as, as things progressed, you know, as well, actually, let's go a little further into the future. Look at, look at music, um, you know, stores today, music stores, like music rogue, Gary's telling us all about all the stores, you know, down in New York where all these guys were, you know, famous musicians around the world buying their guitars and they're all gone. All these yeah. places that you would have seen, you would have frequented, you would have dealt to, um, do, do, have Manny's and Sam Ash yeah. and, and, and a whole bunch of them all. Next to no. each other. I know. Did you ever foresee, I mean, I'm, I'm just talking crystal ball here, but did you ever foresee a day of something like the internet, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time, would change guitar manufacturing and selling like it has today? No, it's beyond my wildest dreams. I'm still an old fart. You know, I'm lucky I can even make this thing work. I know it's it's it is it's a blessing and a curse. Like I told you off the air, I love this technology. I mean, it pays it pays a lot of bills, um, but at the same time, I also hate it too. You know, it's like you want to disconnect sometimes. You know, you know, one of the problems is we we know too much too fast. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I watched this is unrelated to to Kramer, but it has a little tiny bit of uh, Van Halen, which will bring us back to Kramer. Watch a, a really cool interview with David Lee Roth yesterday. Uh, that guy is, you know, he's he's as crazy as, as they come. I love him de to death. But he was talking about about three or four years back, he kind of detached himself from technology. He doesn't use a phone anymore. Like he doesn't carry a cell phone with him. And he says, you know what? I'm always with I'm always within five feet of somebody who has a phone. Right. Mm. And I think sometimes if we can detach ourselves, if you have the right people working with you and for you and, you know, that kind of thing, you can kind of do that. It's not for everybody. But the technology today is that double edged sword, I think. You're right. Yeah. 
there is um, okay. Here's um, this. This is a very good question from Carlo here in Canada, and this, we're going to have a few questions coming from the chat. Um, he says, uh, "How did EVH end up with Kramer? I haven't heard the story, so I, I'm going to set it up a little bit for you. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I think that was something that you talk about. Dennis Bale sell you know ice to the Eskimos. Right. Um, he had, uh, if the story that I heard." was Dennis kind of met one of Eddie's uh, texts on a plane or something like that. He was, wait- he was having a conversation with a lady and waited till he could get this text attention, started talking. So you, you tell me if, where that continues from there. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, Dennis, I believe, was on a plane to California to go to Guitar Centers. They were our biggest dealer at the time. And we were not making any money with Guitar Centers. Although they were buying volume, they they were, they, we, there was no mar, margin at all. The only thing good was the minute you sent them the guitars, you got a check. Mm-hmm. So for the cash flow, it was incredible, but we were losing money with guitar centers. Okay. So Dennis is on the way out there to meet Wayne Mitchell, I believe. And on the plane, as he gets off, he sees this young man's got a, a, a tour jacket. I think it said like Van Halen World Tour. Well, somehow Dennis bumps into the guy and uh, next thing you know, he finds out he's Eddie's guitar tech, and, he, and now this young man is on the phone with Eddie. And next thing I know, uh, here Dennis is at Eddie Van Halen's house. And uh, at that time, we had, I believe, the Rockinger yes. tremolo. We didn't even have the Floyd Rose. And, uh, and Eddie became, uh, right away, he loved the guitar. And back then, I, I, we still had aluminum neck guitars. And he loved the guitar, and we we're going to put this rockinger on. And somehow, uh, Dennis and Eddie hooked up with Floyd Rose, and Floyd Rose had the tuners on the uh, on the on the tremolo. And right away, since Eddie liked it, we signed up with Floyd Rose instead of rockinger. And then Eddie wanted woodnecks, and uh, rest is history. We got wood- you put wood next on your guitar too. Fetty Van Halen wanted it. That's what you, whatever he wants. Well, I heard uh, for a limited time that the Rockinger was almost deemed the Eddie Van Halen uh, tremolo, and there was a few things that you know that maybe Eddie didn't like, and w- which was a good thing in a way because it would have changed manufacturing completely. The the tremolo was made out of brass, which is we, we like brass stuff. I like putting brass in my blocks and my my Floyds, uh, but it was brass and it was coated with a bit of a clear coat that rubbed off very very easy, and a bit of a softer metal. Um, and I just think maybe that had some problems, but Floyd Rose, let's, let's talk about the Floyd Rose tremolo for a second. Let, let, let's con- almost think of that almost as a, um, a person working at Kramer. It's, he's a, a valid, I'm not talking about Floyd Rose, the gentleman, but the tremolo, what kind of value would you put on that as towards the success? I think the tremolo and Eddie Van Halen each had a huge thing. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now that was the Floyd Rose tremolo was good and bad. It was great. For the company, and but the company is struggling uh, because we had just bought ourselves back. This is a long story. I don't know if, how many people know, but uh, we sold out to Guitar Centers at one time. Wayne Mitchell of Guitar Centers owned controlling interest in Kramer Guitar. Okay. And, and uh, I structured a deal to buy everything back after we got Eddie as an endorsee, and we had the Floyd Rose. When I saw all these sales coming in, I structured a deal with Wayne Mitchell to buy everything back. And uh, one thing about Guitar Centers at that point in time, if they bought a, a product from you, you would ship it right to their each individual store as opposed to a warehouse. So he had no warehouse. Okay. He had no accounts payable because as soon as the thing came in, you got your money. And, and steep discounts, but you got your money. And uh, 
so Wayne becomes a major partner in, in uh, Kramer, and uh, we were having trouble getting along with him. He was a tough guy, uh, but he did turn things around because the first couple years, we say by the time uh, Wayne got involved, we might have done two and a half million in sales, but we lost a half a million dollars. Two years later, the same two and a half million in sales, and we made a half a million dollars. So it was a swing of over a million dollars. But he was, uh, it's hard to explain. When he'd come into the factory, uh, for example, he would uh, go in the, in the bathroom and he said, you know, I don't want you guys buying toilet paper anymore. He says, if these guys need toilet paper, let them bring it from home. If they want soap, let them bring their own soap. And Dennis, I don't want you buying any more pads or pencils. Get them free from the salesman when they come in. I mean, that was the attitude. And it was meant to send a message, just like General Patton sent a message to his troops by making more leggings. I mean, it wasn't the purpose of the leggings. It was to send a message. Well, he sent the message. And you couldn't buy anything without his approval. And, but he was so overbearing, you couldn't work with the man. So I structured the deal to buy the company out, and we're all set. I had I had to pay him, I think, $300,000. Dennis and I went to my attorney, and Wayne Mitchell was there, along with, uh, I want to see, Cher, I forget his first name, he, uh, one of the big shots. He was his right-hand man. And at the meeting, everything is all set. We're ready to sign. And Wayne says, oh, by the way, he says, I want the rights to the Floyd Rose tremolo. I said, what? He said, yes. I ripped a check up in front of him and walked the hell out. Wow. Walked out. Yeah, that's how so, vital it was. Walked out. Dennis quit. And he says, okay, you guys, you want to run a damn company? Well, they couldn't run a company. Okay. So this is why there's a God up there. And for some reason, God watches over me. So... I think the guy's name was Ray Shear. So Ray says, well, look, Henry, he says, I've got to go back now and run a company. Could you give me a ride back to the area so I can rent a hotel room? So I drop him off at a hotel. That same night, I get a phone call from my sister, Frances, who ran a travel agent that did all of the bookings for Kramer. She says, Henry, she says, I just got a call uh, from uh, some name, guy named Ray, and he's, he's flying back to California. And I asked him, does he want me to? Do you want me to book a return trip? He said, no, I'm going home. I'm not coming back. So now that's set in my head. The next morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, Andy Papiccio, our plant manager, called me up. He said, Wayne Mitchell just called me. He wants to know where Ray is staying. Well, right then I knew I could make the deal again. So I told him where Ray is. Now I get a phone call from Ray. He said, look, he says, do you think we can meet one more time? I think we can work this out. I said, no. He says, I beg you, please. So we had a meeting. We go back to the lawyer. We sign the papers. I says, the only problem is I don't have a certified check for $300,000. So I says, I'm going to write you my check. But it's no good until I put the funds in the bank. And you can't use it until Wayne signs the papers. So everything's done. He flies back to California. This is probably just before Christmas. I don't know what year. Don't hear anything. Now, the day after New Year's, I believe Dennis, I, and Andy had taken a trip to Connecticut. We had now had a company called Sports that was making our guitar bodies and some of our wood necks. Familiar and we wanted, we wanted to check out the production. And while we're there, we get a phone call from the office, very urgent, Dennis, you must call the office. Dennis calls the office. He says, we got some bad news. Wayne Mitchell died New Year's Eve. Okay, now, oh my God. Two days later in the mail is the signed contract. He was on his way to the post office and he sent it and he died on the way home. 
I can't now believe that. we got their company back. Wow. Isn't that something? Now, a lot of people don't know that. That's what happened. Wow. Literally signed it, put it in the mail. And, and died New Year's Eve. What, heart attack? I'm not sure or? if it was New Year's Eve. or, But he died. And three or four days later, after we found out he died, it, the signed contract came in the mail. So you're probably you're finding out you're thinking okay well that we had a good run it was a good run uh, it wasn't meant to be and it was meant yeah. to be, yeah. So and that's when things you know we started to grow. Absolutely fantastic, and I was familiar with that company sports. You hear that in the in the folklore of Kramer a lot. Yeah, uh, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, there is, and this is something too, obviously we talked about, uh, artist relations earlier. Obviously that's one of the ways you met Johnny Cash and there's, we talked about Eddie Van Halen, one of the biggest name artists, uh, on your roster. Uh, Vance has a question in the chat. If you could share some of the other Kramer and Dorsey's, feel free just to name some, uh, names off the top of your head. That's something like the Richie Samboras. And- oh, yeah, actually Richie, uh, Richie's a great guy. Richie Sambora. We had even John Bon Jovi. Uh, we had uh, Gary Talent and Springsteen's band, uh, Kiss, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Twisted Sister, Queens, Right—all the heavy metal bands played our stuff. And now let's just talk about Dennis a second. He was so creative that he set up the first Russian rock concert in Lennon Stadium, sponsored by Kramer. And all those heavy metal bands went there and played. Man, well, it's very funny that you mentioned. Um, well, we talked about Richie Sambora. And people are going to get a kick out of this photo I'm going to use for um, Dennis when he comes on the show on Tuesday. Dennis sent me a nice photo, and I don't want to spoil it, uh, but there's some nice uh, Sambora, Bon Jovi scenery behind him. We'll say that. It's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. It's- well, okay. Th- this is, at this point in time, Richie was dating Cher. Right. And um, he had rented a home, I believe, in Manasquan on a river. And uh, I think Dennis and I might have gone there one morning and... You don't want to see Cher in the morning without makeup. Uh, I can <laughs> imagine. That. I can imagine. That's that's funny. Uh, he had he had a uh, a long list of you know the Hollywood elite uh, girl. I mean, even right up to recently, you know, uh, with Orianthe there, and I know that I think they've separated as far as I know. But uh, yeah, he's had a long history of the uh, Hollywood's elite women for sure. Then again, good guy. Yeah, good guy. I, I have heard many good things about him, uh, for sure. And obviously, he was one of the flagships. I mean, we you know, like you mentioned, all these other people as well, too, and the Molly Crew. The list goes on and on and we on. We even on. had Hank Williams Jr. and the guys in Kenny Rogers' band. Even country pickers played our stuff. That's great. That that's I know, and I saw some of the pictures, like in, in your uh, on your Facebook there as well, too. Like there was one, not just the rock and roll guys. You know what I mean? Mm. That's really cool. The history, the history. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, let's go back to, to Eddie Van Halen for a second. Normally on my EVH show, we'd be talking EVH all night, but we're just going to do a couple things. So Eddie came in at around 82, uh, lasted up until right around, um, 80, how long was he with you till 85, 80, yeah, probably 85 or so. And is that when he no, left? I think longer than that. Was it? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. Good. See, I didn't take an, an active day to day role in running a company. Right. I right. was the guy to put the money in and I let. Dennis and everybody else run the company. Mm-hmm. But you did have the pleasure of meeting him a few times. I've seen. Oh, some absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He come to my office. I was at the factory when he'd come there. And what was unique is he and Valerie would stay at Dennis's home in Homedale when nice. he would come. Do you, did I, he did he have a lot? Do you think he, Eddie came to to Kramer with a lot on the plate? Like, was he a good visionary for the guitar? I mean, we absolutely. Looked, yeah, I, I would think so. And then he would come to the NAMM shows, the NAMM shows. We'd have what was called the Kramer NAMM Jam. Mm-hmm. And we had everybody. We were always the hit of the show. I mean, when Eddie would show up at our booth, I mean, dealers, they would beg to get passes to bring some of their 
major customers to meet him. Yeah, he was something. For sure. I remember good, one good guy. I remember one Nam Jam. Obviously, I was too young to to experience it, but I remember there was a great one with Eddie Van Halen and Steve Stevens, uh, two people I really greatly admire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve's been on the show a few times. Uh, and that was kind of a head turner as well too, because they're they're both guitar, you know, virtuosos, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, the the one question I was going to ask you as well too, um, as as far as okay, so Dennis is coming on Tuesday, and we're probably going to go a little more deeper into the Eddie Van Halen side with Dennis because I know he had a lot of interactions with them. Um, more so than I did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you're like you say, your role was more along the lines of the investment, making sure that things are running. But I do like the fact that what you talked earlier about, you know, running that tight ship. You know, when you're told, you know, tell the guys to bring their own uh, toilet paper and things like yeah, that. It was true. Yeah. Well, even in today's day and age, when you know we don't necessarily have to be as strict, you know, and you got to be so careful with HR, you couldn't just say that guys got to bring your own toilet paper. You wouldn't get away with it today. But, when, no, but it was just send a message. Exactly. Oh, I know. Strictly. Oh, I know. I get it. And I'm kind of like the... Well, oh, you know what else he did? He made Dennis, if you want note paper, if somebody sent you a letter, after you read the letter, you'd turn it over and you'd staple them together, and that was your notepad. Wow. <laughs> and if you wanted pencils or pens, wait to the salesman to come in and give them to you. Yep. Yep. Well... Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Even when you've done well in your years uh, with finance and things like that, I'm sure that you're still a smart man. Where like you don't want to have the heat on super hot at night, yeah, and, and things like that. And I'm like that here. I'm old dad here. I, I turn the heat down. It's like, can I get one more degree? You know, the wife's asking me. <laughs> but even at my last job, I worked in radio for about eight years, and you know, my boss there didn't pay the bills. It was corporate that paid the bills. But he literally went as far as putting a timer on the lights in the bathroom, so you could be in the stall in the bathroom. Tick, 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 and then boom, like you're locked in the stall and the lights are out. It's like, you know, trying to, and they're, they're motion sensors. So you try to go like this, you know, to get the lights come back on, but it's a little embarrassing to be in the dark and in, in a stall and, mm. the, and the lights are out. So yeah, it's, it's very funny how, uh, but I get what you're saying. It's a message sent to you and, uh, it certainly, certainly, uh, it brings home. There's something that was shared. I know you're a member on the Facebook page, the, uh, Kramer, um, Kramer, uh, Neptune, New Jersey Facebook page. You remember there, and there's some good stories shared there. Um, there was an article shared way back. I don't know when it was, and this goes back to some of the developments and things that you were doing. And I'm just going to read the headline. It was talking about Rockstar has ideas for casino. And I believe possibly you, Johnny Cash, and Eddie Van Halen were going to look into building that. Was that true? Yeah, true. Okay, what happened was, uh, as I mentioned, I became a, a partner in a major development of the entire boardwalk in Asbury Park. And at the time, I had submitted a bid to uh, purchase all the buildings, which included a building called the casino. It's not a gambling casino. It just happened to be called the casino building. Okay. And, and my history goes back to 1954 when I saw Bill Haley in the Comets as a young kid in the casino building, the birth of rock and roll, and it started right there. So I took Eddie to the casino building, and he freaked out over it. And uh, we, there was talk that you know he would make an investment as well as Johnny Cash and a whole bunch of other people. And the idea was to have a nice venue for... for oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and also to build a recording studio. We had talked at the time with Steve Ripley about setting up a recording studio for us right on the boardwalk. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, Steve was quite a guy. Rest in peace. Yeah, friend. we just lost him recently. Yes, for sure. Yeah. What, what a genius. I was I mentioned that to Gary and I was down at his place there. And I don't, I don't think he knew at the time. It was he, he, You could tell as soon as I told him he was very taken back by that. You know, a, a, a real genius for sure. Yeah. Now, you know something, in listening to the interview with Gary, I never knew that Gary was born in Italy. There you go. I never, Naples. I never, I never even knew he was Italian. 
<laughs> well, you know, and, and that's why they use the name Kramer, because it was an all-American sounding name, like yeah. a Fender or Gibson or, you know. That's right. He, he made a joke yeah. about it. And, and I mean, you know, Gary's sense of humor. He's he's funny. He's like, you know, we had La Placa, we had Vaccaro, yeah. you know, we had Berardi. He goes, should I call my name Kramer Etty? You know, and the only true person born in Naples, you know, and right with the American name. Isn't that something? Yeah, I love that. And that's why now he's used it with his wine. He's kind of taking the homage back to Italy. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, so very funny. Uh, did, 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 I mean, this is something we don't have to necessarily answer, but I'm just curious myself. Did Eddie have any kind of silent partnership in Kramer at one point? You know, I don't even know. I know uh, he was probably getting a royalty sometimes. Right. On, on, um, um, I don't know for sure. that That's a question for Dennis. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll ask Dennis that on, on uh, Tuesday. And that's the thing, too. I can see sometimes where some of the, the, you know, some of the financial hardships could have come in because the one thing you want to have as a company growing is you want to have big names playing your guitars and your instruments, for that matter. And then also, okay, then that becomes a problem where, okay, now we've got a lot of these guys and girls playing our guitars at a big name acts. Now we've got to either pay them or we've got to compensate them in other ways. And then it's like, oh boy, it's like, be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, I mean, we we give a lot of guitars away. There's no question about that. And uh, that was Dennis's strong point. I mean, if you knew the roster of players that came through our factory, you could not believe it. In fact, we had a wall and we had them all sign it. And when a company went under, somebody snuck in there at night and broke in and took the wall. Oh, man. With all the signatures on it. Oh, geez. Yeah, and that's priceless. You can't put a price on that. No. No, there's can't. no value. Speaking of things like that as well, too, where there's value that uh, is, you know, unbelievable value. Um, I, I don't know the full story on this, but you can share as much or as little as you like. So when you were basically when you left and uh, kind of sold the business, it was sold to Jackson Communications. Is that correct? Yes. What happened was... Uh, uh, we grew rapidly, Kramer. I mean, with uncontrolled growth. Our best year probably was, and don't hold me to this. I mean, yeah, of uh, course. It, I, I've seen your moments once in a while. No Maybe problem. let's say it was 88 or so, and we might have done 13, 14 million in sales, and we had our first big profit, and we finally in the black uh, on a balance sheet. We finally have a positive net worth after all those years and all those struggles. The next year looks like it's going to be our biggest year by far. And, and we're now buying maybe 5,000 guitars a month out of Korea, another couple thousand out of Japan, some out of Taiwan. And all of a sudden there's strikes in Korea and we couldn't get the product. So instead of $18 million in sales, we're down to 12 million Ouch. and the company is now in the red again. We brought in some new investors and they really screwed things up royally. And they basically walked away and my name was on all the debt. Oh boy. Uh, I owed three and a half million dollars to the bank. That's a chunk so, of change. Yeah. And and I really had the bank by the short hairs because they did some very bad things which was later proved in my, uh, in my way in a bankruptcy court. So I had put Kramer, I bought it back from the bank and I started a company called HVV Corp, my initials, Henry V. Vicaro Corp. And the stockholders were my two children. And the deal I had with the bank was simple. They sold me all the assets for a million dollars. They gave me one year to pay, interest-free. And the deal was that as I sold product, the bank would get 80 cents, I could keep 20 cents to operate with. Okay. And they gave me a bill of sale, and the bill of sale was taken verbatim from the original loan document. In other words, uh, the bank had a lien on the 
uh, all the inventory, finished goods, unfinished, name, trademark, patents, and everything else. And they took that very document and they signed to me in exchange for a million dollar note. Well, the biggest asset the company had was the Floyd Rose Tremolo because we had sub-license agreements where we sub-licensed the technology to other manufacturers. Right. Historically, it would bring in maybe 800 to a million dollars a year into the bank. Now, from that, Floyd got 40%, Kramer got 40%, and the patent attorney got 20% for collecting and administering the royalties. So, 400,000 a year is not chump change, right? No, this no. is back in the late 80s. Sure. So after I signed a deal with the bank, I signed it sometime in December, January of whatever year it was, in the early 90s probably, and uh, I go, I call the patent attorney up and I'm looking for an advance on the royalties. He said, what are you talking about? I says, the Floyd Rose royalties. He says, you don't own them. I said, what do you mean? He said, the bank sold them back to Floyd for $250,000 cash. Now, bear in mind, it had 10 years of life left on the license, bringing in $400,000 a year or an income stream of $4 bucks, and they sell it for $250,000 cash. And don't tell me. So the first thing I did, I stopped paying the bank. Okay. Stopped paying them. They sued me. I quickly put the company in Chapter 11 and went through the whole court system. It took me many years, and I proved fraud. And the, and the judges, you don't owe them a million dollars anymore, Mr. Vicar. I'm going to reduce it to 250000 and I'm going to allow you to sue them for damages. Wow. Well, I'm in a personal bankruptcy now. If I sue them, I'm not going to see a penny. So I, I didn't do anything. But I get approached by a representative of a company called Jackson Communications, Inc., the Jackson Family Company. Mm -hmm. And I had brought Joe Jackson, the old man, to Asbury Park because they wanted to get involved in the de beachfront development. Well, when that fell apart, uh, one of the uh, guys that worked for my partner, a guy by the name of, uh, another senior moment, uh, whatever. <laughs> I forget okay. his name right no, it's now. okay. Bob Petralia, his name was, who was a senior VP of Warner Communication. Well, he put together a company called Jackson Communication, patterned after Warner, which had all these subsidiaries, a restaurant division, a music division a motion picture division, uh, you name it, they had all these divisions. They make a proposal to buy Kramer out of bankruptcy. And a company, Jackson Communication, was made up of all 11 members of the family, Mr. and Mrs. Jackson, Tito, Reby, Marlon, Jackie, Jermaine, Michael, all family members were equal stockholders. I figured, hey, gonna be a hit. Mm -hmm. And the deal was they gotta pay off the debt, and then I'm going to be a 10% owner in a new company. They make their first payment, everything is fine. Now it's 1993, the second payment is due, they default. I think that's when Why? Michael was getting into some trouble, legal trouble, wasn't he? Because Michael gets in trouble with the first little boy. Now I can't say any of that is true. No, I'm of not going to no, no, of course not. think about it, but nope. it happened and there's rumors out there. Well, the investor backs out. And who's the investor? Pepsi Cola. Oh, man. So the whole thing falls apart. The Jacksons don't make the next payment. They default. My company gets converted to a Chapter 7. They have a big auction. Everything gets sold off, and I get wiped out. So I sued them, and I get a judgment of $1.5 million against JCI. They thumb the nose at me. You got a judgment against a corporation. No money in a corporation. 
Took me another three years. I went through the whole court system and I pierced the corporate veil and I got personal judgments against all the stockholders, Michael, Janet, all of them. The next problem is, under the law in California, you physically have to serve the person and you can't get in with a mile of Michael or Janet, so I could never serve them, but I got everybody else. I got right. Mr. and Mrs. Tito, Randy, Reeby, Marlon, Jack, and Jermaine. Okay, I'm going to collect. Take the deposition of the mother and the father, and they lied to me. They said they had no assets, no cars, no bank accounts, and nothing. So I hired a detective and started seizing assets, and I ended up seizing a warehouse full of all their memorabilia. As we are here today, I have over 30 unreleased Michael Jackson master recordings on 16-track masters. Now, I knew you had some phenomenal uh, uh, clothing items and show things. I had no idea about the recordings. That yes. is insane. Now what I'm going to tell you is more insane. Okay, I know there's okay. big suits coming. I know I, that. I, I've been sued by the Michael Jackson estate. They beat me up real bad. They made some <laughs> false statements. Okay. I'm doing some research. Somebody says that the tapes are no good unless you own a copyright. So I did some research and found out that Joe Jackson, the father, owned a copyright. Okay. Had a lawyer check it out. Well, in 1999, when Joe filed bankruptcy, he never disclosed that he owned a copyright. So this past March, I went to California, and I hired an attorney. I did something unheard of. I reopened a 20-year-old bankruptcy of Joseph Jackson, the father, and a trustee sold me the copyright. So as we're sitting here tonight, I own a copyright to the Jackson television shows and all this music. Man. So. Absolutely amazing story. That's only part of the story. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, I heard. And that, so there was there was a major backsuit. Wasn't it something like, I, I want to say like $100 million or something they were trying to get out of you because he wanted all that stuff back? Yeah, well, what happened was, that's another crazy story. <laughs> I, I had a, I don't know how much time you oh, have. Oh, we have time. We, we still got almost 30 minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. You take your okay. time, sir. Okay. What happened was, when I first, I got to backtrack a little bit because I must tell you about this detective that I hired. Okay. I flew, I flew to California and we took the deposition of Mr. and Mrs. Jackson and they flat out lied. They said they had no cars, no bank accounts. Mrs. Jackson said she had fake furs. Michael wouldn't want her to have real furs, costume jewelry. He wouldn't want me to wear real jewelry in public and all this crap. And the lawyer said, well, how much are you worth, Mrs. Jackson? She says, less than $1,000. Oh, come on. I have this on a transcript. Yeah. Okay, so now my lawyer, who I got out of a phone book, who is on a contingency, drives me back to the hotel, and he says, you know, I hate to tell you, I don't think you're going to collect a million five. He says, they don't have any money. I says, they're lying. I says, I was at their home in Encino for a five-day workshop several years earlier. I know what they have. He said, I'm telling you, maybe I'll find a few hidden bank accounts, but don't count on collecting a million five. Man, what am I going to do? He drive me back and drop me at the hotel. And I had a friend of mine named Mark Nelson from Asbury Park, New Jersey, who moved to California. And I called up Mark and I, you know, I need somebody to commiserate with. I got to talk to somebody. I mean, I'm out there in California all alone and I'm, you know, I'm desperate now. <laughs> he says, you got to hire a detective. I said, Mark, I don't know any detective. I know somebody. When I get home, I'll get his name and I'll call you. So he goes home an hour or two later, calls me back and gives me a detective's name. And I called him right away. And this is another reason why I know there's a God up there. Because what you're going to hear next will blow your mind. I get voicemail. Sorry, your call is very important, but I'm out of the country. Call me back next week. 
I can't wait till next week. So now I call home to my son, Henry. Now, this is 1999. We just got a computer. And he says, well, Pop, let me look on the Internet and I'll call you in the morning. Maybe I can find another detective. Calls me back. I'm going to leave like two o'clock in the afternoon to fly home. And he says, I found somebody. Looks like he might be on the same street as your hotel. You should call him. So I call a private investigator by the name of Frank Kunis. Okay. And I tell him what I have. He said, what? You have personal judgments? I said, yes. He says, has it been transferred to California? I said, yes. Do you have a writ of execution? I said, yes. The next word's out of his mouth. I hate the friggin' Jacksons. I said, what? He says, they screwed a friend of mine and the poor guy lost his house. He said, mister, you don't know me from Adam. I'd collect this for nothing if I didn't have to earn a living. He said, but when you get home, you must call me. So now I get home and I call him and he says, look, if you want me to take this, you got to get rid of the lawyer that you have. And I'm going to give you a package deal of 30% that includes me and a lawyer that bites and doesn't let go. I said, okay. And he says, I need a copy of the sealed uh, judgment. In other words, if you have a judgment in one state for it to be good in another state, it needs a seal of the state that it was issued in. So I got the state seal on it, ship it out to him. But now I have the transcript where Mr. and Mrs. Jackson lied. Sent it out to him. He said, we got him. We'll collect this. I said, okay. Maybe a month later, I got a phone call about 5.30 in the afternoon. He says, do you get a television show called Inside Edition? I said, yeah. He said, watch it tonight. I said, what for? He said, watch it. Then call me. So I went to a local little watering hole, and I begged the bartender to put on. They were watching the Yankee game, and I begged them to put on Inside Edition. Probably hard he to said, get well, the switch. I said, please put it on. Yeah. Right? So next thing I see is two Rolls Royces being taken from Mrs. Jackson's garage, oh, and a spokesman says, this is to pay a debt to a New Jersey contractor named Henry Vicar. Oh, so... He took two Rolls Royces out of the garage. Oh, boy. Okay, now he goes to work. He set up a phony company. He couldn't find any hidden bank accounts. And he set up a bogus company, and he wrote $30 refund checks to the whole family. Would you believe that three of the family members cashed the checks? And when you cash it, you turn it over. It's got all their bank account information on the back. We got 11000 out of those accounts. And so it they're, gets better. So they were des- better. that desperate to actually cash $30 checks, first of all. Yep. And on the back is their bank account information. Okay. Now the detective goes through the glove, the glove compartment of the Rolls Royce and he finds an insurance card. Well, Mrs. Jackson said they had no insurance. So my lawyer subpoenas State Farm Insurance of California. They refused to honor the subpoena. He went back to court. And we got a bench warrant to arrest the president of State Farm of California for failure to honor a federal subpoena. Bam. Wow. A week later, they send a file. In the file is a copy of a canceled check where Mrs. Jackson paid State Farm from a bank account she said didn't exist. Now we know where she banks. My lawyer contacts the bank and he says, I have a, a warrant for a judgment. There's eighteen or 19000 in the account. He says, I'll be there tomorrow after court. By the time he gets there, Somebody tipped off Mrs. Jackson, and she closed the account. Uh-oh. And I said I had a good lawyer. He went back into court. There's something called an ex parte application. Okay. And, and I would normally, if I would say I sued you, I have to notify you and your lawyer. But if you did something sneaky, I go into court, you don't even know I'm there. Ex parte, single party. My lawyer goes into court, and a judge issue, the judge issued a sealed subpoena for the chairman of the board of Wells Fargo Bank to turn over Mrs. Jackson's last three years of bank statements and canceled checks. Unheard of. Oh, boy. You know how much comes in, you know where it goes. 
So each month she's writing a check for $700 to a warehouse in Oxnard, California, some 60 miles away. The detective went out, spent a week out there. Not only did he locate the warehouse, he got a copy of the lease, and it was leased to Tito Jackson. Okay. Now he says, we, in order to seize this warehouse, we need a probable cause. What do you think is in there? I says, I know what's in there, all their memorabilia. How do you know? Wait a minute, I might have something. Well, it took me about a week, but when I was at their, their, their home in Encino for a workshop, they were talking about doing a restaurant division, and I kept the private placement memorandum, which stated that Mr. and Mrs. Jackson owned all the memorabilia and listed what they owned, contrary to what they said in their deposition, and said Tito has been collecting it. With that, we get a seizure order that seven U.S. Marshals are sent on this warehouse with a locksmith. They cut the lock floor to ceiling, 5,000 square feet of everything this family owned. Now they start taking the stuff out, and the marshal says, hey, you got enough stuff out of here. They only owe you a million five, maybe a million six with, and some change, and you already have two Rolls Royces. And by the way, if you sell for more than you, they owe you, you got to give them the change. Well, I don't care. I just want to get paid. Sure. So they, put a, they put a seal on the door. Say, U.S. Marshal, do not enter. I now have that seal because you're not going to believe what happens. That is now in one warehouse. Mine goes to another warehouse, a bonded warehouse. The bums file a bankruptcy on me, and I had to give everything back. I had to give back the two Rolls Royces, the Thriller piano, and all this memorabilia. Because that would have because, to go to the bankruptcy collectors, technically? Yeah, because okay. under the law, it happened within 90 days of a date of a bankruptcy, and it belongs for all the credit. Oh. i got to give all of it back. And he said, the detective said, I mean, the marshals, by the way, what's in the other warehouse, it looks like it's Michael and Janet's. You don't have a judgment against them. It's got to stay. Okay. So now I lose it all. The next two years, you have a U.S. trustee that's appointed who now globally takes care of the warehouse in Encino and the warehouse where my stuff is in. He's got global. He's got both of them because they were under the name of Tito. After two years in bankruptcy, he sold a lot of real estate. Now he's now doesn't want to get involved in the memorabilia because they're now competing people who claim it and some that don't claim it. So he goes to the judge and a judge signs an abandonment order to abandon everything in both warehouses back to Tito Jackson, providing he pays the back storage fees. A month goes by, he doesn't pay the storage. The trustee goes back to the court. What do I do? The judge just cancels the order that's giving himself worth many millions of dollars and says, sell it. My lawyer calls the trustee, what's going on? I'm going to sell it. How much do you want? If you give me an offer of 60000 to cover the warehouseman's fee and 30000 for my legal fees, no, 25000 for my legal fee, I'll recommend an auction. Okay. My judge, my lawyer calls me. I said, okay, I'll give you a bid right now. Henry, you can't bid on it. I said, what do you mean? He Conflict says, of Under interest? California law, you're considered an insider. Do you know anybody with a corporation? Well, I had a friend of mine who had a corporation. I convinced him to put the bid in, and I'm going to take care of him on the back end. He puts a bid, and it gets accepted, subject to an auction. Okay. The day of the auction, my guy is now in a hospital and can't go to California. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I went and I had papers drawn up. I made my son-in-law the acting president of Elridge Corporation. My son-in-law and I fly to California. Nobody knows he's my son-in-law. I don't even tell my lawyer that who picks us up at the airport. But the lawyer was brilliant. He says, Henry, I can't represent you. I mean, I can't represent Elridge. So I'll put two and two together. I suggest you hire Mike Kelly, an associate of mine. So my son-in-law hires Kelly. Kelly goes to the warehouse that's owed to $60,000. 
we bought their lien for $40,000 cash. Now, we own the lien. In other words, under California law, the lien gives you good title. If you remember Paris Hilton had some stuff in a warehouse and the warehouse man sold it because he had the ownership. Right. Okay. The next day is the court. My son-in-law goes to court with uh, Mike Kelly. I'm pacing up and down in a Marriott like my life depends on it. <laughs> Get a frantic phone call at quarter to two from my son. Henry, we're going to lose. I said, what do you mean? Mrs. Jackson's here. She's got a bodyguard on a lawyer. We're going to lose. Oh, my God. I can't handle this. Five minutes later, Tito's here. Randy's here. Oh, my God. Michael Jackson's lawyer's here. I know we're going to lose. I said, Mark, you're going to give me a heart attack. Ten minutes later, Henry, you won't believe us. Nobody had a certified check. We got everything for $25,000. Michael's lawyer stands up. The judge throws a lawyer out of the courtroom. Says, young man, you have your client has no standing in my court. Bam. That's how I got it. $25,000. So, so now for 25000 plus forty, yeah. so it was 65000 sure. I get two warehouses full of everything this family owned. All the memorabilia. You can't believe what I got. Okay. Now, the judge says, I have seven days to sign the order. Okay, even though we have the bill of sale, the bill of sale is no good until the judge signs the order. So I fly back on it. Cheap flight on JetBlue, fly back seven days later, which is a Wednesday, there's no water. Ah, it'll come tomorrow. Thursday, there's no water. Now I'm working. Friday, there's no order. Now I'm thinking of worse. I'm thinking of there's some hometown decision in favor of a superstar, right? Right. What I didn't know is what the judge knew. The judge knew that they were going to file an appeal. But you can't appeal until the order's signed because you don't know what you're appealing from. Exactly. Five minutes to four Friday, the judge signs the order, closes the courtroom. 20 minutes later, in walks Brian Oxman, their lawyer. Court's closed. Court is normally closed until Monday. Monday's a federal holiday, Martin Luther King's birthday. Okay. Court's closed until Tuesday. Now with the court order and the bill of sale, we loaded that night two 65-foot trailers. Come Tuesday morning, everything that was in both warehouses is in my warehouse in Asbury Park, New Jersey. That's how I got it. Okay. Now I'm having trouble selling it because of all the innuendos about little kids and I'm, I got offers of a million and a half, two million. I think it's worth a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do a pay-per-view website. All right, right. Okay. I had a professional guy put the website together and we're going to charge four ninety nine to give you a walking tour through this incredible warehouse. I mean, I had the deed to Neverland Ring. I had all their file cabinets. Everything was in this warehouse because there was an earthquake in Encino and they took everything from the Encino house, including all the memorabilia, and put it in the warehouse. For safety. And I got it all. Man. I mean, I had files when Joe Jackson beat up, uh, or, or Mrs. Jackson and Janet beat up Joe Jackson's girlfriends. I mean, it, I had all those papers. I mean, wow. it was pretty intense what I had. Mm -hmm. So now I do the pay-per-view website. Okay, I gave an exclusive story to People Magazine under one condition that they don't come out until a certain date when the website's ready to go. Gotcha. They agreed. I gave an exclusive interview to Channel 2 News, Ernie Nassis in New York. They're going to come out, and then CNN, Fox, all those stations will come out after People comes out. Okay. Now the problem is I've got the website ready to go, but I don't have a merchant bank. I didn't know you needed a merchant bank. I was so naive. I thought you called a credit card company up and yeah. take the credit card. Nope, you need a merchant bank. Well, I had no credit because just coming out of a bankruptcy, I couldn't get a merchant bank. And then my partner from the corporation took one of these cruises that nobody knew where he was and we couldn't locate him. 
the website's going live Monday. People's coming out Monday. Next thing we know, website goes live. A million and a half hits at four ninety nine. Can't collect the money. That's the thing. It's, People are going to give you money, but you can't take it. Can't take it. By Wednesday, five million hits, and the bank is broken. By Thursday, I get served with a $100 million lawsuit by Michael Jackson and a $100 million lawsuit by Chad. They close my website down, and I am devastated. Now, I can't afford a lawyer. I, you know, I know we're going way off field. No, no, please go ahead. But Can, this is how the Jacksons got involved in. People are loving this. Trust me. I've seen it a million times in the chat. They're loving this. You carry on. Okay. So now, <laughs> now I'm smart enough to answer the lawsuit pro se so they can't get a default judgment against me. But I can't afford a lawyer. The cheapest lawyer that I got was over $200,000. Mr. Vaccaro, you're in federal court with a client with deep pockets. We don't take these on contingencies. You, your exposure is a million, you know, uh, whatever, $100 million. Oh, my God. Well, I had a friend at Court TV, and I called up Court TV. I says, look, you think Court TV could help get me a lawyer? He says, we'll see what we can do. Maybe two weeks later, I get a phone call from a lawyer in New Orleans, Louisiana, by the name of William Pig, P-I-G-G, Burke Pig. Okay. I pick up the phone. He said, Mr. Vicarity, said, Mr. Pig, he says, I understand you need my services. I said, Mr. Pig, I don't know if I can afford your services. He says, do you have $5,000? I said, sure. We have to meet. So now I fly to Louisiana as fast as I can to meet Mr. Pig. Mr. Pig is a law professor at Tulane University. I want this as a class project. All your work and research will be done by my students, free of charge, under my supervision. This will cover all my filing fees. Mr. Pig becomes my lawyer. Okay. okay. The next thing that happens is Michael gets charged criminally with child molestation by Tom Snedden, which means that the civil suit that he filed against me is put on hold until the criminal trial goes forward. Well, after the trial, you may recall Michael was found not guilty, and he takes off for Bahrain with his three children. But he never paid his lawyer, Lavely and Singer. Lavely and Singer is probably the foremost uh, intellectual property attorney in L.A. And uh, they make a motion to be relieved as counsel for non-payment. My little Mr. Pig makes a motion to have the case thrown out. The judge throws the case out with prejudice which means I'm the only person that is today can use Michael Jackson name and likeness on the internet. And that's part of the story. That is insane. So anyone else could actually technically be sued technically for using it. I have the rights to it. I, and we kept the, uh, you know, we kept the, what do you call it? The, uh, web address and everything current. Wow. So, so now couple that with the music that I now want to copyright to. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope pretty soon I can afford meatballs with my spaghetti. I think so. I have some fancy, some fancy I don't have to drink house wine anymore. That's right. I can drink Gary Kramer's wine. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's some good stuff. It's some good stuff. Yeah. They confiscated on me at TSA, by the way. I'm, I'm very sad about that. Oh, wow. It is what it is. But we're going to get some more. But so do you have, maybe this is something you don't want to discuss, but do you have plans on doing something with the music? Well, yes. I hired an agent. And right now... I'm looking to get a major star or somebody or a producer to take this music because since it's 16 track masters, you can have Michael sing a cappella. You can strip everything and have him sing. And recently, Drake, the artist, came out with a song that had a snippet of an unreleased Michael Jackson track. And I think it did a billion downloads in a week. Not a million, a billion. A billion. 
and I got over close to 30 unreleased songs. And say what say what you want about Michael Jackson. I mean, obviously he had some trouble. Um, we all have our skeletons in the closet, but he was an incredible, incredible. But what's great about what I have? I have him when he's 16 years old. Jeez. I have re-records of some of their Motown hits, and now he's a vibrant 16, recording stuff that he did when he was 10 and 11. Wow. Yeah, so what you, you are sitting on a gold mine. We don't know the value of it yet, um, but we can imagine in our minds what, that, what that's worth. I really hope that works out for you and that you can put the, the right agents, the right artists, the right producers, um, and I, everyone's going to be obviously clamoring to get at this, but obviously it's like a nice wine. We're going to use a wine reference. You don't open it before it's time, right? Right. So um, it's something that, that your family will, let's say you don't do anything with it for the next 40, 40 years, your family would own, maintain those rights? Would it go to them somehow? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm too old for this stuff. I mean, it's for, for my kids. Right. Well, certainly a nice um, nest egg for them as well, too. A nice future. That, what, a, what an incredible story. I mean, there's a lot of people in the chat right now, including myself here. Like, I knew some of the story because going into these interviews with my, my guests, I do a lot of research. So a lot of this wasn't uh, news to me. Still shocking. And obviously, you elaborated on tons of it. So I knew about the lawsuits. I knew about the counter lawsuits. But I didn't know the full details of, you know. Yeah, that's only part of the story. I mean, it would take five or six of our podcasts. To well, do we, can always, we can always do some returns because I know people would love to hear this. I, we, can, we can do some uh, follow-ups on this maybe in the spring as well, too. But I just can't believe, obviously, when people are going bankrupt and things like that, too, they're trying to dumb down their assets. But I can't believe someone like the, uh, um, like the Jacksons, Mrs. Jackson, no kids, I don't have real furs. I don't have insurance. Uh, I mean, if you're going to do that, you might want to maybe even try to hide your insurance slip in your Rolls Royce glove box. I mean, yeah. come on. And I have all that on transcript. It's not something I made up. No, I can imagine. I know you wouldn't be able to do that because you're saying it in a public forum. So absolutely mesmerizing mesmerizing when we're going to jump back just for a quick second just because i want to talk about your colleagues after leaving um, the company and everything like that did you have you had many or have very many conversations with both gary and or dennis no i believe it or not i haven't speak i don't know i haven't seen gary in ages uh i actually was in florida in um this past December, and I called up Dennis, and we actually had lunch together. It was nice. Nice. Very nice. Very, very nice. That's that's cool. That'd be great. That'd be great to see. And it'd be very nice, uh, maybe sometime in the future. Who knows? Baby steps. It'd be, not, you know, we're all getting older. I'm, I'm old, much older than I look. It, you know, and you got to mm. value time, right? We're only on this planet for so long. It'd be nice to see the three of you. I even told yeah. Gary, I even told Gary today, I said, uh, I'm joking, he called me today. I was just getting in my car to go pick up the boy. And uh, he calls me. and I'm like, okay, so I don't get in, I don't get in the car when Gary Kramer calls me. I stand where I'm in the laneway and I pick up the call. Yeah. And, and he's uh, and we're talking about a few things. And, and he goes, uh, when when are you, you going to be interviewing um, uh, Henry? And I said, oh, he's on tonight. So he's I know he's watching right now. And uh, I said, you know, the goal is here to get all you guys in the same room. But I said, you have to have me there with you. And it sounded uh, it sounded like it. When now Dennis is next one, we got to sweet talk a little bit. Great. I think what I'm going to do, if I get some money from the Jacksons, I'm going to go back into guitar business. Hey, there you go. I, 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 I invented a new guitar neck. Well, that's the thing. Here's, this is a good seg- <laughs> Here's a good segue, because we talked about you being becoming an investor in the guitar business, but that certainly wasn't your first uh, rodeo when it comes to guitars. Let's, let's jump over for a couple minutes into Vaccaro. Okay. After I sold uh, and lost Kramer to uh, the Jacksons, I'd started Vaccaro guitar. And... Um, I used a aluminum neck, but this time it was a uh, an extrusion as opposed to a forging, 
where you could just extrude a long length of it. And then we took out of stock material and cut the V out and we welded it. And uh, our first three endorsees, The Edge from U2. Love them. Lenny Kravitz. And Kid Rock. Wow. Three people. Uh, Kid Rock, I'm kind of a you know, 50-50 fan, but uh, uh, Lenny Kravitz, love him. But The Edge, is he's like the Eddie Van Halen in a different realm. Yeah. yeah. He sent us a beautiful letter. And the problem was I had no money to even advertise. And after a couple of years, I decided I'm just going to close the company down. And since then, I've redeveloped a, a, a more improved neck and a titanium neck for an acoustic guitar. Very nice. Very There's nice. never been a metal neck on an acoustic because it's always been too heavy. Right. This works. I've, I've seen some new developments in acoustic guitars where they're doing, one of my friends is actually endorsing this company, and I, I wish I could say the name, I forget it, but it's a full carbon fiber guitar. They're about $3,000, I think, starting price for an acoustic guitar. But I love that idea. Um, the sustained strength, uh, no, no warpage in the necks again, and no right. truss rod adjustment. And you still got the warmth of the wood. Yeah. So, so you're not kidding. You, if, if No, I have one. I have a prototype completely built. And I have a completely built new aluminum neck that uh, I hope to introduce maybe pretty soon. Well, that's great. Well, what I was saying about when I said you're not kidding, but I mean there is like if this, if this, this nest egg just goes boom and blows up, you would um, you would consider jumping back into the guitar? You weren't joking when you said into the guitar business? No, I'm not joking. I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not saying I'd manufacture again, but right. who knows? You know, I have my son and whatever he wants to do and his son. That's right. I had a brief uh, chat with him today uh, on on the, the on the Skype. They were getting everything set up, and and I admire him greatly. You know, it's, and maybe that's a good way to uh, wrap up the conversation. Is it's there's Henry Senior and there's Henry Junior, and here in our family we have Eric and Eric Junior. And I love, like, we're, my son and I, we're like uh, Velcro. We're stuck together like this, yin and yang. Um, but uh, just positive, positive all the time with each other. What was it like working with your son, kind of having him shadow you? I was just going to say something. It's so incredible to be with him every day. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's a genius in so many ways. And my problem is I don't tell him enough. I don't tell him how much I love him. Aww. You know, he, he's just so special to me. I mean, today we had a fight. It was over to Skype, site, whatever the hell you call it. I didn't know how to hook it up. And it's all my fault. It's my fault. I feel so bad. And then I didn't know how to turn it on. Uh-huh. Anyway, thanks to him, we're, we're chatting tonight. That is good. And you know what? That's something that my dad never told me either. I know I don't want to get sappy and make all the girls cry that are watching the show right now. But my dad never really told me, but I knew how much he loved me. And with Junior, like I tell him six times a day and he, he like he'll walk by. And if I don't acknowledge him, he'll say, I love you, dad. And I'm like, love you, son. So I know your son knows it for sure. And that's the, yeah. I've seen I've seen him grow up through you. I've seen all the photos and you just see him age. He's there with a big smile meeting the celebrities for the first time. And then he's actually becoming, you know, uh, working with some of these artists and things like that. So it's it's really heartwarming to see some of this stuff like that. Yeah, I'd love to spend a whole thing just talking about some some of my Johnny Cash stories, because you won't believe the stories, incredible stories about this man. I would love to, I would love it, and I know the fans would. So here's what I'm going to do. I, I know the fans right now are saying, like, the unanimous answer is Eric, yes. Eric, yes, have him back. Maybe I'll reach out to you. Uh, we're just getting into March now. Maybe towards May, uh, I'll reach out to you again. Sure. I'll, I'll find a window that works for you at your convenience because I'll, I'll make it work for you. Come back on. You know, be... I, I just hope I wasn't boring about going into so much detail about the Henry, Jackson stuff. Henry, not at all. Not at all. Uh, this is a nice thing because we're getting to, we're doing the history with three of you. We're talking with, obviously we talked with Gary. It was a wonderful trip and it was a two-parter and you saw it. 
uh, we'll be talking we talked to you tonight which was absolutely wonderful we'll be talking to Dennis on Tuesday and I'm going to be getting him his questions probably tomorrow or Sunday so we can kind of look at them and have a look but um, this is great because we're getting different stories from everybody and it's just painting a different picture of eras that a lot of us knew it's folklore it's like Eddie, over on yeah. my Van Halen show there's all this folklore about Van Halen everyone thinks they know it everyone knows a little bit about it but not everyone knows at all and all I don't think you, many people knew that uh, uh, Guitar Center's own Kramer for two years I did not know that and uh, some people like myself don't even know how far back guitars the guitar center goes they think it's this new big box store no no they, they were back in when he started this is the genius of uh, wayne mitchell of guitar center mm-hmm. when he first opened up his stores i don't know exactly where they were but he put them in what was called the area of dominant influence in other words if he advertised on a tv show that advertisement would can would cover all of his guitar stores in that area so he only had advertising one media to hit all of his stores i mean he was a, a genius it way. certainly is it certainly is um i'm just i'm laughing i'm laughing my ass off right now because and you're gonna get a kick out of this i'm getting text messages saying not in two months i have henry back in two days <laughs> it's hilarious people like they're like no one is bored no one is bored there's no time to be bored i don't think anyone got up from their seats to go get drinks go to the bathroom <laughs> Um, you know, you remind me so much of my dad. It's it, the stories, you know, just absolutely amazing. We could listen. Do you have time for one quick Johnny Cash story? Please, you got it. You got the floor's okay. all yours, sir. Okay, now June, his wife told me this story. And it was funny because with her Georgian, not Georgian, her Virginia twang, she would call me Henry. Henry. Not Henry. Henry. She said, Henry, just think of this. She says, it's now 19 and 69, and we just got married. Johnny's got the number one record in the country. He's got the number one album in the country. Got the number one television show in the country. And he's on a cover of Life magazine. She says, out of nowhere, we get a phone call from Mamie Eisenhower, the president's widow. Would we do a benefit for one of her charities at the Waldorf Astoria? Johnny said, of course. So she says, we fly to New York. She says, I'm all pregnant with our son, John Carter. Backstage, Johnny wanted to look his best. He bought a brand new pair of Andy Jackson boots that were laced up to his knees. He had on his tight black joggers and his trademark preacher coat. Man, he thought his stuff didn't stink, she says. Now, <laughs> he had to escort Raquel Welsh to the podium. And she says, Henry, I think he was smitten. Now, Johnny had a habit when he got on stage, he would lick his fingers like this, get his guitar pick, and play. We licked his fingers, got the guitar pick, and he dropped it. Uh-oh. And June said when he bent down to pick it up, he didn't tear his britches, he ripped them. And you could see the pink of his legs, and he's playing a guitar down here to hide his embarrassment. She says he was so mad that when he went off stage in the dressing room, you couldn't talk to him for an hour. She says, I just waited a little bit. She says, and I knew when I could go in. She says, I walked in there, and I said, now, John, you have to remember something. The good Lord sent you a message. You were getting too big for your britches. Oh. Now, that's a true story. <laughs> I have June telling me that. The cliche really radio. The cliche was m- meant for him. Yes, it was. What? Okay, the, the encore. That was a great way to end the episode. Fantastic. I, okay. I, I only can just imagine the, the, the stories you have. I would love to have you back, to, and we'll dedicate an entire evening uh, to Johnny Cash and, and your memories. You yeah, and you will we'll talk about and more the book. Kramer stories. Sure, sure. I'm sorry I deviated, but we got to talking about the Jacksons because I sold it to them at no. one point in time, and uh, 
That's what happened. I'll be 100% honest with you. I was actually kind of hoping, because we, we got we got some great Kramer history. I was hoping you would go down that road a little bit, because I knew a bit of the story. I was texting, my wife's texting me back and forth here uh, as we're talking throughout the program, and she's like, you know, really fascinated by these stories. And I said, I knew some of these, the Jackson stories. So I was kind of hoping we would touch on that, because it's a magic story. It's one of those things where, you know, there again, it just meant to happen. Look like horrific times. You're sitting there when the, everyone shows up, like in gangbusters. Every member of the Jackson family is there. Uh, we're not going to win. And no case. money. That's right. There you go. Right. Meant to be. Listen, I want to say thank you to everyone in the chat. This was, a, I know you really enjoyed this. I did too, as I well, did. too. Uh, Henry, this this was a lot of fun. Thank you for your wisdom, for your your uh, your time this evening. And uh, I'm sorry that you and uh, and Junior had a bit of a disagreement over technology, but it, I think it's all for the better. And maybe, you know, as you guys can talk about it tomorrow. But uh, he, he's a he's a great kid, and uh, you're a great dad. And thank you for those uh, years of stories. Okay, I think I'm going to ask Gary Kramer to give me some olive oil too. Oh, there you go, there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it's award winning, uh, gold first year, silver the second year, and I and, and I think he's um, nominating or entering the wine now for for judging as well. So. Wow. It's fantastic. So you got to tune in. So uh, Tuesday night, Dennis will be on the show same time as you, but on uh, Tuesday night. So if you want to watch that one, he'll be on. We'll probably be talking about you a little bit. And we'll probably okay. dive a little deeper into Eddie Van Halen with Dennis and obviously the Floyd Rose. It's funny. I dug one out earlier if you heard a big thump. Uh, Floyd Rose is so important to me. This is one Gary gave yeah. me back at his house. Um, I'm, I love Floyd Rose so much that it's, that's my nickname on the internet. I go by Floyd Rose. Yeah, I know. I, I, I I, it's, it's so funny because I'll, I'll grab a guitar that doesn't have a Floyd and I'm going to do a dive bomb and it's something embarrassing and I'll kind of like laugh. Ha ha. Yeah, I meant to do that. And there's no Floyd Rose, but that changed guitar, man. And you guys changed guitar. So thank you for what the three of you and everyone else in the company, uh, oh, I, I, I'm not responsible for that. I just put the money in. Well, Hey, if somebody had no, to do I, it, right? I don't deserve that credit. I mean, Money talks. Money okay. <laughs> Listen, don't go anywhere. I'm going to say goodbye to you off the air, and I'm just going to say goodbye to everybody here. Everyone, thank you so very much. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I guarantee you I'm going to have Henry back. It's going to be very, very soon. So until next time, cheers. Hey, EVH Care TV and Eddie Van Halen fans. If you are like me, you find the time to read books difficult. Why not have it read to you? Grab one of three critically acclaimed Van Halen audiobooks like Van Halen Rising by Greg Renoff, Running with the Devil by Noel Monk, or Everybody Wants Some by Ian Christie, available right now from Audible. Sign up for a free trial with zero obligation to get any one of these three audiobooks today. You can cancel if you wish after your trial membership expires and keep the book. There are many other great titles to choose from as well. Links in the description below, but just remember audibletrial.com slash TV. Click the link below and go grab your first free audiobook. Thank you for listening to this edition of EVH and Gear TV. This episode is being brought to you in part by VanHalenStore.com. Shop VanHalenStore.com for the largest selection of official Van Halen merchandise and memorabilia. Be sure to check out our website at evhgeardiscussion.com for more updates and follow us on social media.